Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. It's time for the Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand and as always joined by our two co-hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how are you? How was your Labor Day weekend? It was great. How about you, Joe? Doing okay. Doing okay. Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. Rich, have the Carolina Hurricanes sent you a qualifying offer and will the Montreal Canadiens be willing to match it to keep you as a fan? I am the Kakhet Niemi of uh, legal podcasting, as we know. And uh, unfortunately, WGN did not match the $6 million offer. So this is my last podcast officially on I'll be taking my talents to uh, to Carolina. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, well, it was a good run, Rich. We're, we're all happy to have you. Uh, we move on to our first topic of uh, the Justice Department looking for ways to challenge Texas's abortion law. With that, we bring in law professor at the University of Texas, Professor Stephen Vladek. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. So great to be back with you. Professor, obviously so much to unpack. We've got a limited time. I want to cut right to the legal, some of the legal questions, which are fascinating on this one. And I can't get my head around, I think, nor can most logical people reviewing this decision, the idea of standing, right? Um, you uh, Basic concept of any legislation, any lawsuit, any court action is you have to have a dog in the fight, number one, and you have to have some damages, right? I, In my practice, that's a condition precedent to anything. So I ask you, as a learned professor of constitutional law, what dog in the fight does a random citizen of Texas have in going after someone who drives someone to an abortion clinic, number one? And number two, how in the world does that random citizen have at least $10,000 worth of damages with, you know, involved in this stranger's abortion? I mean, I, you know, Rich, the way you asked the question, I think, answers the question. Um, the, I think the key, guys, is that the law is not actually designed to make those suits viable. Um, right, that those suits are really just a smokescreen. Um, and what they're really trying to cover up is that the law absents the state from any responsibility for enforcing this abortion ban. The reason why that matters is because whatever you think of the abortion ban, if the state has no role in enforcing it, you can't sue the state to challenge it. And so this, you know, the whole sort of vigilante go out and sue someone you've never heard of piece of this law is really actually not the per it, it, it's it's accomplishing indirectly the real goal, which is to make the six week ban impervious to challenge. So, Professor, you've written extensively on the Supreme Court shadow docket, which this ruling is a product of. This is where the court hands down orders and summary decisions that did not receive full briefing and oral argument. What's wrong with this process? Yeah, you know, Tina, it's a great question, and and part of the tricky part here is it's super complicated. Um, I think even for us lawyers, so there's nothing wrong in the abstract with courts handing down these kinds of emergency rulings. Every appellate court in every state in every country, like you've got to figure out what the status quo is going to be while it takes weeks or months or even years for the case to work its way all the way through the courts. What has changed with the Supreme Court in the last couple of years is that more and more of these decisions at this very, very early stage in litigation are affecting far more people than just the parties. 
Um, so it's no longer just about, you know, can I get my trade secrets? But while we fight over this case, it's no longer about can this execution proceed right now? It's about can this federal immigration policy go into effect, even though lower courts struck it down? Can California or Illinois COVID restrictions right, be blocked while the party continues to challenge them? And so the, the concern, Tina, is sort of twofold. First, that there are more of these very sort of fast-moving, barely-briefed, not-argued decisions affecting so many more of us. But second, that the court is not acting consistently in them. Um, and so with regard to Wednesday's decision in the abortion case, you know, a lot of folks, including um, one of them, have compared it to a decision from back in April where the same five to four majority went out of its way to block in a, a California COVID restriction, even though there were pretty serious procedural obstacles to the plaintiffs getting relief in that case. Meanwhile, the same majority on Wednesday night says, oh, there are procedural problems. Therefore, we're not going to block this Texas law. Um, that's the concern, Tina, is that because this is happening fast, without a lot of briefing, without a lot of explanation, the court is acting in a way that is hard to defend and that the court itself is not defending by not writing these lengthy opinions. All right. So speaking up of lengthy opinions and briefs and oral arguments in the traditional sense, that's coming up in an abortion case, right? The Dobbs decision is up on the term next time. That's the Mississippi law that uh, restricts abortions at 15 weeks versus five weeks in this heartbeat case. Yeah. Do you think the court's 5-4 decision in the Texas law portends how they will act in the Mississippi case? And if not, how do you think they're different? So, Rich, I think it does in one respect, but I think it doesn't in the respect most people care about. So um, let me sort of elaborate. I think it does signal pretty strongly that the court's going to uphold the Mississippi law um, and that the 15-week ban in the Dobbs case, even though it's inconsistent with Rowan Casey, um, is going gonna, is gonna to survive. The tricky part, Rich, is there's a story you can tell, and indeed it's a story that Mississippi spends a lot of its brief telling, about how you could have a 15-week ban and still preserve at least some semblance of the abortion right the court recognized in Roe and Casey. That's not true of the Texas law. Um, there's no universe in which SB8 and Roe can coexist. And so, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the Mississippi ban is likely to survive. The harder question is, does that mean Roe itself is going to be overruled? Um, my own gut, guys, if I had to bet, and there's a reason why I'm a law professor and not a professional gambler, um, is that the court's going to split the difference. Um, that they're going to let Mississippi, you know, narrow it to 15 weeks, but that five weeks is going to, or six weeks in Texas is going to be a bridge too far. But Rich, they haven't had to say that yet because of these procedural contraptions that the Texas legislature deliberately created to, for this exact reason, right? So that SBA could go into effect without any court having to actually say that a six-week ban is constitutional. So, Professor, Texas Governor Greg Abbott just told a reporter that the law does not force a rape or incest victim to carry a pregnancy to term because obviously it provides at least six weeks for a person to be able to get an abortion. He went on to make clear that Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that it eliminates all rapists from the streets of Texas. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, boy. Um, so... First, I mean, let's correct a couple of misstatements. The law doesn't say at least six weeks. It says at most six weeks, right? That, that's not you, Tina. That's what that you're, you're literally quoting the governor. Um, but second, you know, let's, be, let's just reiterate. Many women do not know they're pregnant 
at the six week of pregnancy, right? This is measured from the menstrual cycle, not from conception, not from the first missed period. So it's actually not the case that victims of rape or incest will necessarily know in time to access an abortion. Layer onto that, that here in Texas, we have a mandatory waiting period. So six weeks isn't even six weeks. It's actually five and a half weeks. Um, but also, I mean, it would be nice if the governor actually backed up his statement about getting rid of rape um, with some action. We actually have a pretty significant gap in Texas between reported rapes and rape prosecutions. Um, I don't think the gap is actually out of kilter with other jurisdictions. I mean, I think there are reasons why rape is a very, very difficult um, charge to prosecute, even when it's reported. And obviously, you know, so many victims, for whatever reason, choose not to report. Um, so, you know, Tina, just it is such a sort of cynical misdirection by the governor. Um, and the refusal to just sort of admit, I mean, we all know what is happening here, right? The Texas legislature passed this law in part to, you know, practically prevent abortions in Texas and in part to set up a challenge for Roe um, and to try to sort of tell a story about how, no, 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 we're not actually taking away the right to an abortion. I think it just completely misstates what's true on the ground, um, where for 85 to 90 percent of the women who could have gotten an abortion in Texas as late as last Tuesday, abortions are now unlawful. We're running a little late. I just want to have just one more quick uh, thought on this. You know, yeah. it's like you got to wonder, is this really what conservatives want? Because it's such a poor just from a legal per, you know, uh, perspective. And it doesn't matter what side you fall on. There's plenty of people who, you know, uh, have a legitimate feeling against Roe. And, you know, but from a purely legislative perspective and from a purely legal perspective, this is such garbage. And, and I ask. Is this really what conservatives want? Do you really want, for example, as now has been widely you know, reported, is New York, are New York citizens now going to be allowed to circumvent the constitutional right recognized by the Second Amendment and sue random people for carrying guns, right? Like, is this really what conservatism has come to? Right. I mean, Rich, this is the part that drives me batty, right? Which is, you know, listen, we're all going to disagree about abortion. You know, that's fine. That's as it should be. Um, maybe the Supreme Court is going to overrule Roe this term and, you know, and this, and this conversation will change. But a universe in which a state can infringe rights that at least for now are still on the books um, and make it impossible to challenge that infringement is a universe in which the Constitution means nothing more than what each of the 50 state legislatures wants it to mean. Um, and that's not just a radically bad thing for the protection of our constitutional rights. It's a radically bad thing for the coherence of the United States as a country, as opposed to as 50 different fiefdoms. Um, and, you know, the, the notion that it's okay because it's abortion, I think, completely ignores the extent to which if this actually succeeds, if this Rube Goldberg contraption of a law, you know, becomes a model for future laws, that's where we're headed. And that's just going to benefit whoever's in power in your particular state legislature, not necessarily conservatives or liberals. To me, guys, that's just a road to anarchy. That's Professor Stephen Vladek. He's the chair in federal courts at UT. He's also argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court, and various military courts. Professor, thank you so much for the insight today. Thank you, guys. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is 
is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff Podcast here on WGN Radio. We move to the topic of three officers and two paramedics have been indicted on more than 30 counts in the death of Elijah McClain, the 23-year-old placed in a hold by Aurora officers and died later on that week. The attorney representing Elijah's dad, Mari Newman, joins us. She's a civil rights and employment law attorney at Kilmer Lane and Newman. She's also won multiple awards throughout Colorado, the nation, including Lawyer of the Year. Mari, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Mari, as Joe mentioned last week, a Colorado grand jury returned a 32 count indictment. And it was against three police officers and two paramedics involved in the death of Elijah McLean, who is the 23-year-old black man who died during an August 2019 arrest. The charges include manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. You are the attorney representing Elijah's father. Can you please provide us with some more detail on what happened to Elijah that night and about where this case currently stands? Sure. Well, two years ago, Elijah was just walking home from the convenience store on the corner, minding his own business. He was doing absolutely nothing wrong, but somebody driving by saw that he was wearing a face mask. He was a runner, and that's one of his habits that he did. And uh, he was moving his arms to the music as he was walking. And for some reason, this 911 caller said he was acting suspicious. But the 911 caller also said nobody was in danger. Elijah didn't have a weapon. And there was no particular reason why any of the officers needed to stop Elijah. So it was surprising when these three Aurora police officers didn't just stop Elijah, but actually immediately went hands-on tackled him to the ground, inflicted multiple kinds of excessive force on him, including not just one, but two carotid chokeholds. He lay on the ground vomiting, and as he was doing that, another officer was threatening that if he didn't quit moving, he was going to sick a dog on him. I mean, it was an absolutely... um, disgusting overreaction to a non-event, a young black man simply walking home, minding his own business. Uh, Over the course of about 18 minutes, um, the officers continued to inflict force on him even after he was handcuffed. They had their body weight on him, uh, probably about 700 pounds worth of officers on this 140 pound young man. Uh, Medics came to the scene, and instead of providing the life-saving medical care that he obviously needed by then, they injected a massive overdose of ketamine. Elijah ultimately uh, had a cardiac arrest and died. I want to pick up on the use of ketamine because that really is an important part of the story. How important was it to your client that the paramedics were charged here. It's one of the first cases that we're aware of where paramedics have actually been charged in this situation. And this has led to some laws being changed and enacted, limiting the use of 
those kind of uh, drugs in these kind of arrests. So talk to us about how important a development that is in your opinion as a civil rights attorney. It's a very important development because one of the problems that we see is the weaponization of medication. And so instead of being used for medical purposes, the ketamine was yet another kind of force being inflicted on an innocent young man who is just trying to go home. So of course it was important. And uh, my client was very happy that the uh, medics are being held accountable just as the officers are. So Mari, aside from the acts of the police and the paramedics, you have a coroner who said that Elijah's autopsy results were inconclusive. And you also have the person who made the initial call to the police. Some have actually compared that caller to Amy Cooper, better known as Central Park Karen, saying that the caller, at least some people believe that that caller should have been held accountable for making that initial call, which really set this horrible incident in motion. What are your thoughts as to whether or not the coroner and the caller should be held accountable in some way? Well, with regard to the caller, who knows what that person's motivation was, but it certainly is up to officers to have the training and experience and common sense to just step back and watch for a couple of minutes before they immediately tackle an innocent young man walking home. So while I believe the caller certainly made a mistake, the culpability lies with the officers and medics who went on to inflict all of this deadly force on Elijah. Turning to the coroner, the coroner is an interesting position. Here in Colorado, it's actually an elected political position. The coroner is not a doctor. So while a medical doctor did perform the autopsy, the coroner who ultimately uh, makes the conclusions is a political actor. And I think that when you read the autopsy report, you can see just that. Um, so, you know, when we look at the, the autopsy report, it conflicts radically with what multiple independent experts have said, who have then gone on to look at the um, videotape, who have looked at the medical evidence, and who have looked, you know, including the slides of Elijah's lungs. I mean, looking at all of the cellular damage that was done to him, it was not a... a uh, an unknown cause of death, as the coroner would have people believe. It's very clear that it was the medics and uh, the officers who killed Elijah with all of that force, including the ketamine. All right, to that point, you know, talk about accountability for people aside from police officers like the coroner, like the medics. Uh, we've seen recently in Minneapolis with the Dante Wright situation, the officer Kim Potter, some charges were added. She was the officer who allegedly uh, thought she was pulling her taser, instead pulled her gun. Uh, we're covering later on the show today, the former Georgia district attorney was indicted over the handling uh, over the death of Ahmaud Arbery. What does it say to you that in addition to more police officers uh, than ever being charged, the uh, some other officials like the ones described here are being held to account in these kind of situations? I think the American public has finally had enough after seeing the video of George Floyd being murdered, it was so blatant and people were at home because of COVID and saw the video and were, I think, sort of shaken into an awareness that this is a systemic problem um, that involves police officers, but goes way beyond that. I think there's been an impulse in the American culture, particularly among white Americans, to think, you know, that that only happens to bad people or the, that only happens when people do something to deserve it. And after 
watching these things unfold on video, white Americans are forced to reckon with the fact that this is a culture of systemic racism and brutality, including officers, including medics, including district attorneys who fail to hold them accountable, and witnesses and others who fail to intervene appropriately. And so I think this is a moment of reckoning for our country where people are standing back and saying enough is enough. People must be held accountable when they violate constitutional rights. That's three-time Lawyer of the Year Award winner, Mari Newman. Mari, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. As the acceptance age for COVID vaccines continues to get younger and younger, more and more divorced parents are disagreeing on the matter. Stephanie Tang has represented parents on both sides of the issue, and she joins us here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Stephanie Tang, a partner of Kogut and Wilson, also a certified mediator with Collaborative Divorce Illinois. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So Stephanie, divorced parents arguing over whether to vaccinate their children is nothing new. How is the discussion different though when it comes to making decisions about COVID-19 vaccinations for children? I think that it really stems in the uncertainty surrounding the vaccination and the different uh, opportunities that people have to educate themselves now regarding the COVID vaccination. I think Previously, we have these vaccines that have been developed over many, many decades with multiple rounds of testing, with a lot of research that's been published and a lot of resources out there. On a daily basis, we're getting inundated with new news sources, new information from different organizations and trying to filter through that and figure out what is the most reliable source of information and whether these vaccinations are going to have any adverse side effects that were not brought out in the testing and how uh, cogent these vaccinations are going to be ineffective for the minor children in our cases. So I was really interested in the recent case here in Chicago where a judge uh, basically stripped custody from a mother of a son because she admitted to the judge that she wasn't vaccinated. The judge later reversed that ruling, but obviously that is a rather unique ruling and a product of our times. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that there were a lot of things that were brought up by that ruling. I think that first and foremost, that that issue wasn't actually before the court and that the there was some overstepping of jurisdiction questions in that case as well. I think that that's not going to be an unusual situation moving forward, though. I think the vaccination status, unfortunately, is going to continue to be a issue that comes up in our family law cases, especially over the next few months as the vaccinations become increasingly improved by the FDA and are recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. We've seen this question come up more and more, and I think judges have been required to make rulings on this 
one way or the other. So I don't, while this was a case that was widely publicized, I don't think that that's going to be an unusual situation moving forward. I would not be surprised also if the judges take very their very wide latitude in determining kind of what is in the quote unquote best interests of the child as the statute provides in looking at that as a factor as to how decisions should be made for a child for major medical decisions and as to parenting time potentially as well. So Stephanie, short of going to court over this, um, what dispute resolution alternatives are available for parents, um, divorced parents who may be disagreeing about whether or not to get the COVID-19 vaccine for their children? Sure. So a lot of the times in a parenting agreement, there's actually a provision that's built in called an alternative dispute resolution provision that provides that parents, if there is a dispute regarding an issue such as vaccinations, they're required to attend mediation with a certified mediator first before going to court to try to litigate the issue. This is to try to quell tensions between the parties and to resolve things outside of court as opposed to going full guns blazing into court, uh, breaking down the doors of the courthouse and talking about this vaccination issue from the beginning. Hopefully that will help to try to declutter the court system with some of these issues if we can try to reach a resolution. But because of the dichotomy of how opposed parents are as to whether to vaccinate their child or not. It's not one of those things like whether what kind of uh, basketball camp they should attend where there is some point of compromise. I think the efficiency and efficacy of mediation may be called into question as well on these vaccination issues. And I do think, as I said before, it's inevitable that this is going to end up in a litigated capacity in some sort. So, uh, Stephanie, we've had enough family law attorneys on our podcast over seven years to know how contentious these issues can be and how, frankly, you know, often um, when each side in these very divisive issues retreat to their battlegrounds, the parties in family law, especially and especially in divorce, really tend to cling on, you know, whatever ammunition, whatever leverage they can to win the case. How does adding this issue, vaccination of, of children, add to that, you know, contention. I'm sure a lot of uh, parents who are fighting over every issue are simply looking at the vaccination issue as yet another piece of ammunition rather than really worrying about the substance of the issue, unfortunately, right? I mean, that's an unfortunate reality of what you do is that sometimes people are fighting just to win an issue rather than worrying, worrying really about the substance of the issue. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with that. I think, unfortunately, in our field, we see that a lot, that the emotions and the desire to, as quote unquote, win a case, drive a parent as opposed to the actual concerns regarding the vaccination. I think what we have been seeing that judges have been encouraging us to do is deferring to other experts in the field. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Center for Disease Control, FDA, um, just looking at those objective third-party recommendations. In addition, we've seen a lot of parents deferring to the choices of, and recommendations of the child's pediatrician to help to provide some guidance to the court because each child is different if there are immunocompromised issues or other issues that the court is not made aware of or not aware of how that may interplay with the vaccination. It's very important that the court is becomes aware of that and, and defers to those experts that have a little bit more knowledge of 
how this vaccination issue can really affect the lives of these children as well. Uh, in addition, I think that the courts have also been looking at school guidance and activity guidance, what kind of uh, guidelines are being put in place by the children's school, their coaches uh, for particular activities, and how does this affect their participation in those events as well to determine, again, pull it away from the emotions of the parents and stop being your right or your right. And instead, just looking at here's what these objective third parties are recommending to me. And based on those, or even if it comes to a recommendation of a guardian and item or a child representative on behalf of a child that a court appoints to speak to the child themselves if they're old enough um, as to some preferences that they may express, really just taking it out of the parents' hands, so to speak. And uh, I think that is an important trend that we've seen courts doing in, in terms of addressing that issue. That's Stephanie Tang of Kogut and Wilson. Stephanie, thanks for jumping on and talking divorce with us today. No problem. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. A couple of heavy hitter guests and friends of the podcast. We'll start with Cannon Lambert, senior partner of Karchmer and Lambert. He's also the president of the Cook County Bar Association. Cannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Along with Jamal Green, civil rights advocate, entrepreneur, president of the My Turn to Own program and former mayoral candidate of Chicago. Jamal, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. All right, Rich. Well, this is a topic we talked about earlier in the podcast, so let's get right to it. The Supreme Court formally rejecting a, a request to block the Texas abortion plan. Yeah, I mean, some topics are so big that we have to cover them both in our with our guests, as we did earlier with uh, Professor Vladek, but also with our, uh, as you mentioned, high-powered guest today. I'm interested in, in the perspective of everyone on this. I mean, there's so many legal issues to unpack in this. And again, the, the, the biggest thing for my mind uh, Cannon and Tina and uh, Jamal is the idea of standing, right? Because it's it, there's so many interesting parts of it. Ironically, the Supreme Court, in many other cases that we've covered, have said 
They've rejected hearing cases because the parties have had no standing, right? So they have rejecting, they have rejected deciding cases on substantive grounds because they said that the parties don't have standing. Yet in this case, one of the most high-profile cases to come across the docket in the years, they're saying forget that, even though clearly any layperson would know that there is no standing for these plaintiffs. We're going to hear the case. It it literally makes no sense. Not that we're going to hear it, but we're going to you know we're, we're going to make this decision. How Tina do you allow a law to stand where an average citizen, a vigilante, is now allowed to not only sue an Uber driver or someone who pays for an abortion or a doctor performs an abortion, not only sue, but recover at least $10,000 plus attorney's fees. What are the damages for someone? It's one thing to allow them to sue to enforce it, which is nutty, but to allow those people to recover $10,000, like I, it's, it's, it's even hard to say out loud how crazy this law is. It, it, it's it's totally crazy. I mean, there's so many things about this case that are crazy. Plus, the notion that um, you know plaintiffs couldn't recover because you know plaintiffs being like the abortion clinics, for example, because they were not able to prove the harm because they weren't able, at least in part, to establish that the defendants here were actually the ones who would be. Um, accountable under the law. I mean, there's just so much about this that is crazy. I mean, for, one of, for me, one of the biggest takeaways that we haven't touched upon yet, Rich, is that Roberts was part of the dissent, which I think is fascinating. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what that portends as we look at other cases coming down the pike. For example, Mississippi how how is that going to end up playing out? But I, I I thought his dissent was spot on. I thought Sotomayor's dissent was spot on also. Yeah, those are great points. Ken, listen, you and I have been on opposite sides of cases before, and you have built your career on looking juries in the eye and saying, my client was damaged, and therefore they should be reimbursed their damages. And here's how they're affected by the case, and here's how you should reward them or you know, uh, remedy their damages. That's a basic concept of what you do. That's understandable, right? In this case, it's impossible, again, I, I know I'm beating a dead horse, but for me to get my head around where the damages are for someone who watches someone get an abortion or, or learns that someone is driving someone to an abortion. And most importantly, how does that damage whatever it may be, lead to at least $10,000 for that person. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's so repugnant, this whole thing. Um, this is why elections matter, why voting matters, because this, this law should have never been uh, implemented in the first place um, by the Texas legislature. Uh, and the fact, to, to your point earlier, that the Supreme Court elected to take the case and then go so far as to suggest that an injunction was not something that they were comfortable doing because of nuances that they point to um, uh, that that were novel in their mind uh, and prohibited them or at least caused them to question whether or not they could tell a state uh, court to make determinations like those that are in this situation. It, 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 it's mind-boggling. But I don't understand how in the world somebody looks at a jury and says that even though I'm in and we don't know that, you know, Maryland, 
And I'm, you know, I'm emotionally affected by the fact that there are abortions that are taking place in Texas. And so therefore, I want to sue for $10,000 a, uh, a pop. I, I don't know how that, uh, you know, how that jives with, with reason. It doesn't. Jamal, I really liked your tweet. Uh, you said Texas is forcing every woman to have children, not making kids in school wear masks and gutting voting rights all at the same time. What the hell is going on in Texas? <laughs> what is going on in Texas? Uh, I am glad I don't live there. But, you know, this is ridiculous. And, and I'm I'm agree. Uh, my brother Ken in here, you know, elections matter. But it also what also matters, though, um, is that we know how to play the power game um, in the Democratic Party. Uh, there was years ago we had a Democratic president um, with Ruth. Uh, um, uh, Bader uh, Ginsburg, who could have been told to retire, um, knowing that she was sick, and we could have put in uh, another Supreme Court pick. Um, and then what happened? Goes on over to uh, the GOP, uh, and they were able to continue to put folks on the bench. So you know, we got to look back and see how some of see the, some of the, the mishaps of the party and say. Going forward, we have to really be careful uh, how we play the power game or things like this can happen and we don't have checks and balances to overturn. From Texas to Georgia, where a former district attorney has been charged over the investigation into the death of Ahmaud Arbery, the 25-year-old black man who was chased and shot by a white father and son while just going out for a run in February of 2020, Tina. So, Joe, we talked about this earlier with our guest, Mari Newman, um, that last week, former Georgia DA Jackie Johnson was indicted on the felony charge of violating her oath as a public officer and the misdemeanor charge of obstruction of a police officer in connection with Ahmaud Arbery's death. Um, there are several things going on here that have been cited in this indictment. First, um, the misconduct being alleged is that she used her position to shield both Travis and Greg McMichael from being charged with murder right after the shooting. Apparently, Greg McMichael had worked for her as an investigator um, in her office up until he retired in 2019. And um, the indictment states that she showed favor and affection towards him um, and claims that she failed also to treat Arbery and his family fairly and with dignity when she recused herself actually and recommended another prosecutor who it turns out she um, had asked to help her handle the case. And she had not disclosed this fact when she recommended um, that this prosecutor get involved. Um, finally, the indictment also alleges that she had directed the police not to arrest Travis McMichael, and by doing so that she had knowingly and willfully hindered their duties. So, you know, it's interesting. One of the themes of our show today is, is really holding public officials accountable. And I think I, I'm glad, I mean, it took a long time, but I'm glad to see that this turn of events has occurred um, and would really love to hear Rich's thoughts on this as well as our guests. Yeah, I think you're framing it very well, uh, Tina. And it really plays into the theme of accountability. And, and the good news, I think, as we've talked about, um, is that we are starting to see 
uh, officials being held accountable for their actions in these cases, not just in terms of charging police officers. Uh, we've seen that, and that's appropriate in many cases. But beyond that, right, uh, in this case, it was the ex-prosecutor, which is a really unusual charge to bring. In the uh, Elijah McClain case, it was ambulance drivers, right, uh, who improperly administered ketamine. Uh, in the Minneapolis case involving Dante Wright, we saw last week that the officer, Kim Potter, they added another charge. Of course, a lot of this is due to, you know, the work of our guests, frankly, who both of whom have been on before talking about uh, your efforts in bringing to account officials like this. Canon, you have talked to us extensively before about your work in the Sandra Bland case. Um, and again, I want to know your thoughts as well as Jamal on whether you see the fruits of your labor and those of the other folks that have been on the front lines of the social justice movement, especially in the wake of the events of last summer. I mean, the, the bottom line is a lot of these folks are drunk with power and they need to be held to account. The problem that I see, even though there are some uh, examples of success, like what you're pointing to, is that delay that success comes in. And, and what that ultimately does, when you wait for long periods of time to administer justice, then you retard people's belief in the justice system. So you have to be prompt in the way that you address these sorts of things. If you're not, you're going to have backlash, like what we saw in terms of some of the social unrest. Yeah, he's totally correct. Um, but, you know, I, I guess these these little steps. Yeah. Let me just say that they're actually overshadowed because there is mistrust. And so a lot of folks in the community don't even know that that this is even happening um, and uh, really is looking for um, faster efforts uh, to get over the finish line because we never get justice. We all know that all of the systems uh, have been working together. Uh, and I look back at Laquan McDonald, where we had Anita Alvarez, who decided not to charge Jason Van Dyke for 364 days until a judge told her, uh, 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 until a judge released a video. And at that point, everyone had knew about the case and she was forced to do it. Um, so we all know for years that police officers are not just protecting themselves, but it goes over to the state's attorney uh, uh, on down to many other systems that play a part here. So this isn't something new. This is something that uh, has been delayed. And I'm, I'm glad to see a couple cases where there you know, can be possible acts uh, of justice. But trust, we have a long, long way uh, uh, to go. I mean, I can think back 100 years ago from today, uh, Black Wall Street. Not one person has ever been arrested for what happened there. And you got families that still don't even have the names on their graves. So, you know, all these years uh, have gone by and we've never seen any justice for everybody that plays a part in our injustices. Um, so we have a long, long way to go. Our next topic brings us to Joliet, where a murder defendant filed a lawsuit this week against the Will County Sheriff's Office alleging the, ja uh, the jail snack prices are unreasonable, Rich. Yeah, 32-year-old Derek Williams was uh, allegedly shot by Nathaniel Hill. Uh, Mr. Hill is now, uh, as you mentioned, in prison in, or in, in jail in Joliet in Will County, and he filed a lawsuit, a pro se lawsuit, alleging a million dollars in damages uh, for pain and suffering resulting from the commissary at the jail 
charging snack prices that are too high. He says, if you look at the standard code in, in uh, prison jail, it says that uh, prison jails are entitled to have reasonable commissary prices that detainees can afford, and these are too much. And I looked at the exhibit of the commissary prices. I couldn't quite tell if the prices on the exhibit on the left were the actual prices and the ones on the right, or maybe on the ones on the right were the actual prices. But, you know, I don't know. It says uh, an orange drink is 75 cents. A uh, cupcake is $1.75. I have not spent a lot of time in prison, thankfully. I don't know if those are reasonable prices or not. And listen, these are, it's a funny case, and it's kind of, you know, amusing to talk about. On the other hand, it does raise serious issues about the way uh, prisoners are treated in this country, an issue that we've covered extensively on the show. And at the end of the day, while it's easy, of course, to sort of have some fun with the idea of someone suing their prison because snack prices are too high, and, you know, one reaction might be, well, you know who doesn't get to complain about snack prices is the victim, of course. And that's a perspective. But, Tina, uh, you know, th there are underlying issues. And again, we've covered them extensively in our show with the way that prisoners are treated in this country and particularly in our state. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I actually have members of my family that are civil rights attorneys. And I, I know from, from hearing from them over the years how terribly prisoners are treated. Um, there's stuff we know, and then there's stuff that we don't know. At the end of the day, in this particular case, I'm not sure I understand the million dollars in damages here. Um, but I agree with you, Rich, that um, you know this is a conversation that I think we need to continue to have about prisoners' rights. Jamal, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I think um, you know. First of all, let me just say I think this this man is way more intelligent. Uh, and we give him credit for, you know, it's a funny thing, but um, just the simple fact that he decided to take this on shows that um, he should be working for um, Mr. Lambert uh, offices. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that, um, you know, uh, this does bring true to a lot of what um, we fought for for many years of how prisoners are treated. Um, and, you know, I think this is a, a, a great um, story to at least get that conversation uh, talked about around the country. But uh, I think it's a funny story and I think he's really intelligent and I would like to look into those prices and, and I'll help him fight for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cannon is. Uh, is well, I got to uh, tell you, I love Jay Law. I do. Like, I'm not taking this case. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you, you know, the I thought you was his lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be in jail if I was his lawyer. Uh, there you go. <laughs> All right. Now. Now, but, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I do think that how prisoners get treated in this country in many respects is abysmal. But I also think it's important that we are honest about certain. Look, this is not the case uh, that reflects how people get treated in prison uh, when, when, it's, when it's the wrong way. This case doesn't do that. Um, you know, maybe uh, he's, he's been mistreated in other ways, but 75 cents for, for a drink is 75 cents for a drink. Uh, that's just the reality. That's, that's, that's my perspective. And I think it's a really interesting perspective. And, and, you know, to the average person who just reads the headline, prisoner sues for honey bun prices, 
it uh, again, to your point, it detracts from the real issues that go on in this country, and particularly in the state, about the way prisoners are treated. So I agree with you. Probably not. How, right. many, how much? How much money is our prisoners making in prison? Uh, when you're talking about uh, their labor, okay, and the simple fact that these corporations are really, um, you know, making money off of slave labor in prisons, you know. Then you look at the prices and then you can kind of understand what he's talking about, because, you know, it's just like if our cost of living was a certain way and they jacked up the prices high. I mean, we would have an argument. So in in prison, he's not able to make but a few cents on a dollar that we would actually make. And so 75 cents is actually a a higher price than it should be. So that's how I would look at it. It's a great point. It's a really great point. There is a serious underlying with this whole story, but part of it does feel like a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. I could see Larry David visiting the jail and then hearing about this and creating a whole movement to drop down prices. And uh, And that's the problem in using this as an example. When you use this type of case as an example to try and make the the bigger point that we have to reform how we treat prisoners. The problem is you, you you lock away a whole segment of people that otherwise might lend support to your effort. So to me, it's a, it's a perfect example of, you know, you, you pick the, the appropriate case to try and forward your objective. Well, I would look at it uh, in, my, in my view. Uh, I, I disagree with that by saying we can look at this at uh, as a way for our targeting corporations and how they're uh, playing a part in this as well. Um, So if you're talking about uh, slave labor, if you're talking about corporations who are putting these snacks in here, you're talking about corporations who are funding and making money off of these prisons, you can make a larger argument uh, 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 in in that that route too. But, you know, I, I, I hear you when you're talking about making this a platform to talk about the mistreatment of prisoners. That's great, but I think it should be used uh, to actually talk about how the corporations are benefiting uh, off of the work of, of those in prison. Moving on, a suburban Chicago woman was arrested in Hawaii last week for having a fake COVID-19 vaccination card, Rich, that misspelled the drug company Moderna as Moderna, M-A-D-E-R, <laughs> And a, unfortunately, I think she's from my hometown. Oh, Lon. Uh, you probably know her, Joe. Lon, <laughs> public education system, I'll just say. And all I can think of when I think of the story, you know, get Hawaii, fake IDs, is, is McLovin, right? I can just picture a McLovin uh, ID. But, yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of these cases where Vax card schemes are being derailed, not through some, you know, police work, because of misspelling. Misspelling. <laughs> Yeah, the, the lesson. Yeah, it, it makes no sense that literally, if she would have spelled it right, she would have been fine. No I, spell just, check. I just came from Hawaii a couple months ago. I just came from Hawaii, went through the same process she went through. And I will tell you, if she'd have spelled it right, the, the representative was looked at it and moved her on along because there's no way to technically verify it. And so it's just all about what they see. And so she would have spelled it right. She would have been in a clear. She messed herself up. Exactly. Just just spell check. I mean, for, for our listeners on this show for years, and Tina and I have talked about this extensively, how much we you know, think that legal writing has, the quality of legal writing has gone down over the years, and people just don't care about their work as much. And that's what got me in this case. Listen, it's a great criminal scheme. It's going to happen. Just spell, spell check, and you're in the clear. That's all I got to say next time. 
Next time, spell check. It sounds that hard. Tina? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I agree with you. I mean, we're all laughing because this is so ridiculous, right? I mean, at the end of the day, no matter where you come out on the vaccination conversation, if you're not going to get vaccinated, okay, but then own it. Own that decision. Don't try to fake that you got it. I know that people are doing that so that they can get access, do things, streamline processes, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, just own it if you're not going to get vaccinated or just get vaccinated and have a legitimate vaccination card, right? That's where I come down. If you, you know, make your choice. You know, I, I'm vaccinated. I believe in getting vaccinated. I understand that there are people that don't agree with that position. But when you make a decision, live with the decision you're making. Well, here's the problem. The problem is, and I'm playing devil's advocate here. The problem is, is when you make the decision, you can't technically make your own decision when everybody and every business and every uh, country and state put in their own restrictions based on your decision. So you can. Oh, but you can. It's it's a decision that you're making. And you've got to understand that there are consequences with the decisions that you make, like in all of life. That's the reality of it. We all have to face the the consequences of the decisions that we make. I hear you. You basically have to say, I'm not going to get vaccinated and stay in the house because I can't go anywhere because you have to be vaccinated to go anywhere. I do hear you. But uh, I do understand their argument as well. And again, I'm taking it from a whole different perspective. Anytime you have the opportunity to make money off things like this, it's going to happen. There's going to be an underground economy that 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 comes up, right? Anytime, and what and it's just a business. And at the end of the day, what differentiates a successful product and an unsuccessful product is quality. Even criminal products have to be of good quality, right? If you've got a bad gun, if you've got a bad drug, it's not going to sell. In this case, the product sucked because you couldn't sell right. I do. I do agree there. <laughs> there is trust and believe. There was a lot of uh, fake vaccination cards that went through Lollapalooza uh, <laughs> and nobody spell checked. <laughs> exactly. That's true. You know who wouldn't have bought into those products are the Shark Tank guys and uh, stars Kevin O'Leary and Kevin Harrington are denying any wrongdoing in a lawsuit against them of fraud right now, Tina. Yeah, so this one's really interesting. So as Joe mentioned, these guys were sued last week, Kevin O'Leary and Kevin Kevin Harrington, by 20 plaintiffs who claimed that there were two crowdfunding companies in X and IdeaZone, which the stars were purportedly involved in. And apparently these companies claimed to help entrepreneurs with promises of financial success and um what seemed to be, at least as far as the plaintiffs are concerned, promises um, to be on the Shark Tank show. Um, They claim, however, that they got no help. They made their investments, but that these two companies were just a facade to extract money from them. Um, They claim that these companies, that they were waiting for months for them to make good on their promises and that they didn't. What's interesting is that O'Leary's lawyer um, actually responded pretty quickly right after the lawsuit was filed, claiming that O'Leary believes that someone must have stolen his identity because he said that he's never heard of these companies and that he feels like his rights have been violated as well. And he wants folks to be held accountable. This is a little bit of a head scratcher, though, because apparently both Harrington as well as O'Leary have appeared in videos that were tailored to some of these plaintiffs 
um, claiming to be affiliated with these companies and trying to help these companies um, get more um, folks to invest in them. So my guess is that this is going to settle out of court. Shark Tank doesn't need this kind of bad press, but it's just a little bit of a head scratcher when these videos show these guys trying to um, advertise on behalf of these crowdfunding companies. Yes, yeah, uh, it wasn't me defense. It was someone who looks just like me who's on a major network TV show. Um, I mean, what strikes me about this case, and my take is like, there must be these lawsuits all the time with Charm. I'm surprised we don't hear more. It's basically buyer's remorse, right? These investors are buying to companies based on a short pitch. And the pitches you see on the show are like seven minutes. In reality, they're a few hours and they're edited down. But think about it. You're investing a million, two million or, or, or more, sometimes less, based on a two-hour pitch. That due diligence in real life takes you know days, weeks, much more than that. So I'm not surprised that when one of the sharks invests and then later goes south, they pull out and they're sued by the you know by the inventors or, or the company owners. This must happen all the time. Um, and I'm surprised, frankly, there's no release before you go on the show to not sue anyone that's involved, right? How can you not? How can that not be a condition precedent to be a contestant on the show? That hey, anything that goes wrong, there's no lawsuits. Can yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly where my mind went. I'm surprised yeah. it's not a release. And I, you know, I think the devil's in the details with this type of situation. So you suspect that, uh, you know, it'll probably resolve like what Tina said. But at the end of the day, they're going to figure out what what's what and who did what and who knew what and all of that. You know, depositions are, are good for that. So uh, yeah. it'll flesh out. Yeah, no, but, but you think these guys would like not come up with it wasn't me, it was the phone. <laughs> I mean, that's just craziness. There's got to be. I mean, these guys would think that they were sophisticated enough where they'd get better co- coaching, legal coaching. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I really don't understand what the relationship is with, um, you know, the entrepreneurs and the network and and what's the legalities there. But you would think there would be some situation. Um, that allows um, the investors to have actually more due diligence. And uh, some of what they say is kind of TV. <laughs> and, um, you know, you can't technically just say, oh, I'll give you a million dollars after this little pitch when you technically haven't went through um, the numbers, you know, and actually was able to, to sit down with your team and see actually how this can work. It sounds good uh, when they're presenting it to you, but, um, probably a little bit different once you dive into it. So I, I would think those legalities will be in place, but it's the, uh, it's the shaggy defense. Wasn't me. <laughs> Wasn't me. That's a good argument, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I didn't know we were going to get a shaggy reference uh, on this <laughs> segment of the podcast. Uh, let's go to Italy, Tina, where the musical artist sting is getting stung for a lame excuse of an apology regarding the quality of the wine products sold at the winery he purchased from an Italian duke. Yeah, so you really can't make this stuff up. There's a lot of facts here that I'm going to try to distill down to a, an easy-to-follow story. You said so, distill. Huh? You said distill in a wine story. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually pulling a Joe now. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, the segues have been getting harder and harder with the stories we're doing. I, I, yeah. I really have been fine lately, but it's it's difficult. So let's scroll back 25 years. Um, so way back when Sting is at a um, local um, winery and it's in Tuscany 
He is um, at this vineyard. He's trying this great glass of red wine. He's told by the Duke who owns the winery, or at least he claims that he was told that it was a Tuscan Chianti. But the story goes that it really wasn't a, a Tuscan Chianti. It was a Barolo. But apparently when Sting heard that it was a Chianti, he thought, I think I'll just go and buy the whole vineyard. And that's that. So apparently what happened was um, he felt like he was, um, I guess, that he was, um, there was a hoax involved that he was somehow misled. Um, there were people at the same event who apparently he said later when he was interviewed by this magazine a few weeks ago that they were throwing this wine in into the bushes because they didn't want to drink it. The upshot was that he's talking about this 25 years later with this magazine. The magazine spins this as a hoax that this Duke um, had somehow um, led Sting astray and that, you know, that he was at the end of the day that there was this terrible thing that happened to Sting. Now, what was interesting was the Duke has died. His son saw the story in this magazine and said, none of this is true, accused Sting of slander and said that actually that none of this happened the way it came down and has threatened legal action. So Sting then went forward with an apology and said, he, he understands that it was disrespectful and actually he claimed that things didn't happen quite the way that the magazine framed them. And that in fact, um, it was Sting's inability to distinguish <laughs> from a bar of soap, which I thought was very, was very funny. But, you know, it's just very strange to me how this whole thing turned out. I mean, I think ultimately it'll be interesting to see whether this Duke's son ends up um, you know, trying to go forward with this slander suit. My guess is that Sting's going to throw money. He doesn't need this bad press. But it was just a very strange story. You don't hear much about Sting these days anymore. And for him to have a story like this out there is probably not helping him from a publicity standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've read the story a few times. I still don't understand even what the allegation is, to be honest. And all I got to say is, like, these are these are 1% problems, right? I mean, Sting is <laughs> suing over the wrong winery. We're talking earlier about prisoners suing for, you know, snacks being too expensive. I mean, talk about two different, you know, extremes of, of lawsuits. And, you know, I mean, not to get too serious, but we're talking about all the, you know, underrepresented people dealing with legitimate uh, uses of the legal system. And again, you know, Ken and I are frequently on two different sides of this kind of litigation, but what a waste of time. I mean, Sting, go away and stop wasting our time with lawsuits over wineries. No one is feeling bad that I guess you bought the wrong winery. Is that what he's alleging? Who knows? But uh, J-Mile, do, do you have any sympathy for uh, for Sting on this one? Uh, no, I do not. Enough <laughs> said. Ken, any takes on this one? Hey, listen, I'm glad I didn't taste the wine. <laughs> I don't know what was in that wine, but... Uh... <laughs> By the way, it all comes back to Shaggy. Guess who released an album with Sting a couple of years ago? Our, our old friend Shaggy. So it always comes back to Shaggy Joe on Legal Face Off. Yeah, I didn't know you were this big of a, a Shaggy advocate. Um, okay. Last time I asked you, you said it wasn't me. Uh <laughs> 30 years later, and he's still chasing that dollar. The naked baby from the cover of the Nirvana album, Nevermind, claims the photo was child pornography rich, and it was an invasion of his privacy. 
Oh my God. So ending off with like talking about stupid lawsuits. Um, this is the stupidest. I just got to say that uh, this is the biggest abuse of the legal system I've seen in a while. Let's, let's just break it down for those of our listeners that don't know the story. So Nirvana, obviously one of the most iconic bands of all time, uh, Nevermind from 1991. We've all seen the album cover. It's a baby naked in a pool his genitals are sticking out and he's chasing a dollar. He's swimming after a dollar bill, right? So one of the most famous album covers of all time sold, you know, millions of copies. Uh, Spencer Eldon, who is the baby on the cover, uh, a couple of weeks ago filed a lawsuit in federal court. Canon practices in federal court. I practice in federal court. Tina practices in federal court. So the same judges that we're appearing before have to hear this case of Spencer Eldon saying that he's been damaged because uh, in 1991, he was the victim of child pornography by being on the cover without his permission, number one, and also, number two, that he's been exploited sexually because of that. So he, party, did he third party his parents? Yeah, just, just, <laughs> take, yeah, a seriously. just take a breath and say, come on, really? I'm not wanting We've seen some stupid lawsuits over the course of seven years on Legal Face Up. But again, this is one of the worst. And, you know, when you actually look into the substance of the allegation, I mean, whether they had permission or not is a simple question, right? And generally, you know, being someone who works in the entertainment industry, no one would release an album, let alone a major record album, with all of those releases not being secured. But let's put aside that for a second. And when you look into the actual statute that governs child pornography, this is like laughable. It's nothing close to it. And again, it totally bastardized and literally mocks the true victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault and sexual pornography. And there are millions of victims out there. When you think that this guy is alleging that he was the victim of child pornography, there's no such thing in this case, right? Um, parents. There's certainly no sexual images. There's certainly no period interest. And by the way, to a jury, and Ken will back me up on this, a jury, I think, would first look at this lawsuit and say, wait a second, aren't you the one, number one, who came forward? No one would know that this is you, but you coming forward, so where are the damages? And secondly, and more importantly, he himself, on the anniversary of the album, on several occasions, recreated the photo, where he, as an adult and as a teenager, was recreating the photo so how could you, on the one hand, exploit that photo and then years later allege that you were damaged by it? By the way, the last thing I'll say is talking about ridiculous amounts of damages, as much as the Texas law is crazy for awarding 10000 he is seeking $115,000 against every member of the band, the producers, the record label. So his just, pockets have ran dry. Exactly. Just just insane. That, that's you know? one heck of a closing argument, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and this is after he's interviewed and talk about how important this was, like the, having this opportunity to be photographed. You know, his parents got paid. They were, you know, they were given this opportunity to have him photographed. They were paid for the photograph. I, I just think that this is a very opportunistic, you know, this album was one of the most influential albums of our generation. And it's somebody who's trying to capitalize on that financially. Yeah, we, we wouldn't know who he was, but for the fact that he wanted us to know who he was. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's a weird, weird situation where you, you want people to see you, but you want people to pay you because you were seen. That makes sense. 
Jim, I'll take the opposite. You said devil's advocate earlier. Is there any scenario where you, as a <laughs> juror, would sympathize with these allegations? Come on, take take the opposite side. Well, if I was working for Mr. Lambert's firm and it came to my desk, um, <laughs> no, um, no, no, none at all. I think, um, you know, this is. Uh, uh, one of those scenarios where your pockets have ran dry and you're trying to figure out a way to make you some money and get folks to settle. Um, but we all know it's not going to work. So just a waste of our taxpayer dollars for court. There you go. Well, let's finish off and go. I mean, this is an iconic album cover. I actually, here's a plug. I host a podcast called Trial by Vinyl, where we debate which of two albums by famous recording artists are the best. And one of our discussion points is always the cover art, because most of these albums, at least so far, have been classic vinyl records. And back in the day, J-Mall, before your time, we used to have these things called record albums, and you would actually, you know, pay attention to the cover art. That was a big deal. So let's go around the horn here, and everyone chime in with your favorite, maybe album cover, CD cover of all time. Uh, Tina, I know you're uh, a huge music fan, as we've covered extensively. Any favorite record albums uh, in your uh, cover cover art in your Oh, man. Well, I'm going to get super obscure here. Um, two of my favorite record album covers are, um, I'd say, The Church, um, Gold Afternoon Fix, and then Split Ends, Conflicting Emotions. Okay. Always got to be a Split Ends. We get it. <laughs> uh, Canon, j what are your thoughts? Any of your favorite uh, record album covers? I love Bill Withers. He's got a, a lovely day. Uh, for some reason, I, I just like that. It's, it's, it's nostalgic for me. It, it makes me think of when I was a little kid. And uh, mine's is another naked baby. Uh, I'll go ready to die. Notorious B.I.G. Okay. Joe, what do you got? Well, I, I figure you're probably going to go with the Bruce Springsteen born in the USA with the American flag and Bruce's hand in his back pocket. Um, but I, I honestly just think of like the iconic ones. When I was in college working at the radio station, we actually had murals painted on the walls and they used iconic album covers. So the Michael Jackson thriller where he's kind of leaning back, that that always sticks in my mind. Uh, and I'm still riding on a high from the Hell of Mega Death Tour at Wrigley Field. So I'll go with Green Day American Idiot, too. Not a bad one. Not a bad one. You're you're right. And one of my favorite record covers is Born in the USA. You know, maybe the most famous shot of a uh, ass in rock history. Uh, there's so many. There's so many great ones. And uh, uh, you know, I think that's a dying art. Uh, r- r- record album cover art is uh, is kind of a dying art in the days of uh, just dropping albums. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyone listen to the new uh, new uh, Kanye record yet? That was uh, it met with some disappointment, I hear. Uh, you got an early take on the recent <laughs> record? Have not heard it. Well, well, you know, I so Kanye is a, a very big supporter of mine. Uh, so I just want to make that clear. Uh, okay. um, what I would say is Donda, I think, was um, a, a great piece of art. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't rate it as my favorite album of Kanye or favorite top three. But, um, you know, they usually say the artist gives you your best early on, you know, when they're really trying to make that impression. So, um, but it was, it was an okay album. Also uh, like Drake's uh, new album as well. You know, they're beefing right now. Uh, I think they both did. Okay. But 
not their best. That's Jay Mall Green. Find him on Twitter at Jay Mall Green, J-A-Y-M-A-L Green. And also check out his website, jmallgreenspeaks.com, along with Cannon Lambert Sr. Go find out more about him at getthecannon.com. Give him a call at 312-977-1300, 312-977-1300. For our co-host, Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.